act without chastening, we go astray as believers, even as our children do. If our children aren't chastened, if they're not being discipled, and if they're not being properly punished when they disobey, they go astray, and so do we as Christians. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 90, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. In this concluding episode of Dr. Alan Strange's series on church discipline, he discusses the practice and basis of church discipline, of course, using scripture as our guide. Let's hear what he has to say. Well, we continue our discussion, which I hope is both interesting and beneficial to our listeners, of a really important topic, church discipline. And we've seen that in the broader sense of discipline, that means discipling. And there are a number of ways in which we're discipled, chiefly through the means of grace, both in a public uh, exercise of those means chiefly, but also in the private use of those means uh, as we read God's Word for ourselves and pray and and speak of these things in our families, but also the kind of discipline uh, that is not always sought for but can be, we might say, imposed, and the importance of the informal discipline of friends speaking to us and maybe challenging us about an attitude they see in us something we've said or done, then they want to say, is is this really what we should do? That's important. We ought to be able to speak to one another. Uh, in times, certainly, when the church, you might say, is flourishing, when the church is in a time of, of renewal and reformation, uh, that sort of thing is there. That sort of thing is present. People being able to speak into one another's lives and not just get the response of butt out, mind your own business. Uh, obviously, that can be wrongly done, but I, I, I hear so much about how it can be wrongly done that I fear that we cannot try to rightly do it. And I don't know how to really understand the one anothering passages that are replete in Paul, uh, yes, it's to encourage, absolutely. But it's also an encouragement. If you if you call me on my sin where I need to be called, that's actually being encouraging because sin is slavery. And it doesn't really, for a believer, it doesn't work properly. We don't really want to walk in sin. We, we're, we do it, but it's not what we ought to do, and it's not what we know that at our best. And I was talking about the formal aspects of that, just a little bit more about how this can work in practice. Uh, church discipline uh, as a mark of the true church means that the church is to be faithful to her Lord, each member personally and all the members together and as a whole. The body as a whole, think of it this way, to think of a couple of scriptures, implicates itself when it fails to exercise discipline and censure sin. We see that in Joshua 7, the sin of Achan, that was a personal private sin, but it affected all of Israel. And so you can go look at Joshua 7 and 8 and see about that. 
Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2 to 4, and their disgraceful ways as priests affected all of Israel. Uh, and, and in these cases, Israel would lose battles because there was sin in the camp and they didn't even know about it, but it, it affected them. Um, and we see in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul challenging the Corinthians, he had already done so in a previous letter, about there being among them a man, a, a, one of their own, a Christian, who had an inappropriate sexual relationship with his father's wife, with his stepmother. And Paul said this is something even the pagans don't permit. And he challenged them about it. And I think we see in 2 Corinthians 7 uh, something of their repentance. And Paul speaks to them then about that repentance and encourages them. I think you see this going on with Ananias and Sapphira, Talk about church discipline. You know, Ananias and Sapphira seem more interested in appearing to be holy than actually being holy. And I think their death is saying to the ancient church, uh, you remember Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property and represented that they gave the whole amount uh, into the common uh, pot, you might say, that the church had. They weren't required to do that, but they represented themselves that way. In other words, they wanted to make themselves look better than they actually were. And um, it became very clear with Peter that this isn't going to fly, and they both die. I mean, it's you might say, wow, you're calling that church discipline, yes, of a, of a very certain sort. Here, the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, knew what had happened. We don't have that same kind of insight, of course, that, that Peter had, but he was given that insight. And uh, you see something there of the, the need to deal with sin, that sin does affect uh, the whole body. It also should be said that discipline in the history of the church has either been neglected or abused. Uh, I mentioned this before, but just to say a couple of things there. Calvin lamented its neglect in Geneva. Calvin had come into Geneva in 1536, and he had to leave unceremoniously in 1538 because he would not admit these open adulterers to come to the table of the Lord. Uh, So he barred the table to what were called libertines, and was sent into exile. And the reluctance of the council there in Geneva to leave to the consistory the question of admission to the table, the the civil magistrates wanted to say who should come to the table, you might put it that way, instead of the consistory, which was the the spiritual council of the ministers and elders, um, that stemmed uh, from medieval clerical abuse of excommunication and interdict. In other words, what you have in the Reformation is certain civil rulers, what ultimately comes to be called Erastianism from Dr. Thomas Erastus. This Erastianism is the notion that in some sense the state is over the church. The state has the power of the keys to say who can take communion and who can't. The reason that ever came about was because the power of the keys had been so abused by the church, particularly in the medieval period, where if you ran afoul of the pope, he would, for political reasons, essentially excommunicate you, or maybe if you were a ruler of a country, put your entire country under interdict, which meant all sorts of things. We won't get into the details of that but it meant that your country didn't enjoy all the means of grace, so to speak. 
So this has been abused, excommunication as well as deposition from office has been abused throughout the history of the church. It's been used as a tool to get at one's political enemies. We see this in the case of of Chrysostom. We see it in a number of cases. And we can do either in our churches today. Think on the other hand now of what's gone on in the last century to century and a half. And in many liberal churches, you've had the church winking at sin as in, in many seeker-sensitive churches where nobody would ever be called on the carpet for anything. People can live very ungodly lives and the church never says anything about it. And so we want to make sure that we don't abuse discipline or neglect discipline. So as we think about the abuse or neglect of church discipline, let's focus a little bit on just what the basis of church discipline is, backing up just a little bit here. It starts here when we've talked about discipling. We need to recognize that God himself chastens us. When we think about discipline, God himself chastens us. Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12 tells us this, right? God chastens us so as to enable us to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's that's a definition of sanctification, which is that work he's doing in our lives right now. But if we're going to die to sin, which the Older theologians would say mortification, they like to use that word, and live to righteousness, vivification is the big word for that, which is to say to put off the old man and to put on the the new, to use the language of Ephesians 4, 17 and following, and Colossians 3, 5 and following. We need chastening in that because without chastening, we go astray as believers, even as our children do. If our children aren't chastened, if they're not being discipled, and if they're not being properly punished when they disobey, they go astray, and so do we as Christians. Without chastening, sin isn't checked in our hearts, and we are not treated as sons. Hebrews 12, 8 is very strong here. It says, because we're sons and not illegitimate children, We have chastening. And the reasoning there, you have to follow the reasoning in Hebrews 12. The reasoning is that illegitimate children are not going to receive the inheritance. That's the case historically and legally. The illegitimate children aren't the heirs. It's the legitimate children who receive the inheritance. And so they must be groomed to receive the inheritance. And that grooming to receive the inheritance involves discipline. It involves chastening. And in fact, Hebrews says, no son is without chastening. And that's the remarkable thing about Hebrews 5, 8. It says, though he were a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And we really can't comprehend that that remarkable statement. But we know this, if Jesus needed to learn obedience through suffering, we certainly do. Uh, We're not even sure what that totally means for him. We understand he has a human nature with his divine nature. He's one person, uh, but uh, he had to learn obedience through what he suffered. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it this way, God had one son without sin, no sons without suffering. And so it makes that makes it unmistakably clear that God chastens us, not because he hates us. Remember, Israel in the wilderness says in Deuteronomy 8, you brought us out here and, and we're experiencing what we do, what we are, because you hate us. 
And no, I haven't brought you out here because I hate you, but because I love you. I want to sanctify you. And so we're disciplined in these ways. We're disciplined by the Lord himself working in us, we might say, by trials and afflictions, by the self-examination that he requires at the table. When we come to the table, we're supposed to examine ourselves. That's an aspect of this discipline. He enables us to put sin to death, or as Mark 9 puts it, have salt in yourselves, which has to do with dying to sin. So the Lord disciplines us himself. He disciplines him. He disciplines us, as we've seen in, in the previous talk, by, by our previous podcast, I should say, by others in our lives, that is, by the one anothering of the church, by private counsel of others. And then he disciplines us by the properly appointed authorities in the different spheres of our lives. He disciplines us in the family. The fifth commandment says to honor your mother and your father. Well, they're the ones disciplining you. Uh, he also disciplines us by, by, the, by the engine of the state, the civil magistrate. Uh, when we're stopped by the policeman, this is why we say, yes, sir, officer, thank you, officer, lovely day, officer, because he has due authority, and we submit to that. And the church, there's due authority in the church. Matthew 16 and 18 makes clear the grant of authority that God gives to the governors of the church. And Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 talks about how we're to submit ourselves to those who are given rule over us. And one one thing uh, that I would also like to talk about here, maybe to, to finish out uh, our talks at this point on uh, the discipline of the church is also, and it's important to bring this into consideration here so our our viewers don't leave uh, with a wrong impression, um, which has to do with the nature and limit of church power relative to discipline. You see, church power is, it's important to understand the nature of church power. It's ministerial and declarative. Positively, that means the power given to the church is to serve and to teach, like Jesus says in John 13, to wash one another's feet. Negatively, that means the power is not magisterial and legislative, which is how it is in the Roman Catholic Church or even in some fundamental churches where they have, they're very heavy-handed in the way they govern. Church power, in other words, is moral and suasive, not legal and coercive. Civil power is legal and coercive. Church power is moral and suasive which means it's concerned with sin and righteousness and seeks to persuade unto obedience. Unlike the power of the state, which is concerned with crime and has the power to punish such with the sword. So the limits or boundaries of church power are this. All earthly power, as seen in the ways we look at, for example, the, the fifth commandment, the Westminster Larger Catechism, has 11 questions, 123 to 33, expounding the fifth commandment and sees all due authority coming from that fifth commandment, but differently held and exercised according to the grant and ordinance of God. In other words, the family is given the power of the rod and not the power of the sword or the power of the keys. The state is given the power of the sword and not the power of the rod or the power of the keys. The church is given the power of the keys and not the power of the rod or the power of the sword. Put in other terms, the power of the family extends even to wisdom and discretion, certainly for minor children, and the power of the state extends even 
to the death penalty if the state exercises that. Um, church governors, you could say, are analogous to parents, but they have no power to compel with regards to discretion or wisdom. In other words, church governors, elders, and ministers can't say in their formal capacities, no, you may not have ice cream. Like your parent can say, you may not have ice cream. They can't say, no, you may not purchase that car stereo to a teenager like the parents can say that. Church governors are are also analogous to civil rulers, but they don't whip, jail, or otherwise physically punish their parishioners. They have no power to do that. Rightly understood, the spiritual power that the church exercises is in is the most fearsome and awesome that there is because excommunication in in one sense if you're excommunicated and you stay out of the fellowship of the church forever and you die out of its fellowship that's more serious than the death penalty is uh, it it's it, it's it would be better to to be under the death penalty for a capital crime you committed and yet be penitent and truly in fellowship with the church sorry for what you've done and still a part of the church uh, than to be outside of her, the visible church, uh, and to die in that state. And so I think it's important uh, that we recognize the spiritual nature of the church's authority and also how that, how that um, you might say, fits in with Christian liberty because it isn't the place of the church to tell us. Uh, for example, think in the case of of marriage. The the church uh, could say to one of its members, you should not marry this person that you propose to marry because they don't profess to be a Christian. They, they have no Christian profession. They're outside the visible church. But they may not say what a, what a mother or father may say, we don't think Jim is the best fellow for you for these reasons. The church can't say you may not marry another church member. Uh, that is not properly their place. It may be the family's place to give advice and so forth in that case, but the church has a different place there. And um, so there's a there's a lot more to talk about here. I wanted to talk about the nature and limit of church power so that when we're talking about discipline and formal discipline, our listeners all understand we're not talking about a tyranny that is over them in the church. This is this is a servant model. It's one of foot washing. Yes, it involves real, proper spiritual power, um, but it would be good to talk about many things. Um, we could talk more about marriage. There's a lot to say there and how that fits into this, and also the purpose of church discipline, uh, what what church discipline involves. I, I agree that there are three classic purposes, uh, but I would add a fourth, and our, our listeners may be interested what that might be, and that uh, would await another day. But I hope these have been uh, interesting and helpful, as I've said earlier, discussions uh, together about church discipline in all of its aspects, uh, sought for, imposed, informal, formal. The point of it all is that we want to be in submission to our King and Head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to walk in all of his ways, and to be to be called, to be brought up short by those who are properly positioned to do so, and even our fellow Christians, when we don't do that.
Perhaps you're dealing with an issue of church discipline in your church or know of those in leadership who are. I hope these episodes were encouraging for you. And if you know of any who would benefit from Dr. Strange's insight into church discipline, I encourage you to pass these episodes on to them. Well, next time on the podcast, we'll be exploring an issue that a good portion of those in the Reformed tradition may find familiar. If I just give you the initials, you'll know what I'm talking about. F. V. Yes, we'll be talking about Federal Vision. If you haven't heard of Federal Vision before, you'll want to stick around for this conversation. Joining with us once again will be Dr. Strange, along with Dr. J. Mark Beach and Dr. Cornelis Venema. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.